Welcome to this Institute for Government event, Artificial Intelligence, Governing the Ungovernable, question mark, kindly supported by the Institute for People-Centred AI at the University of Surrey. Uh, I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, and it's wonderful to see so many of you here at the coveted Monday morning breakfast slot. Uh, it's great that AI has uh, got so much interest here at Labour Conference um, this year. Um, before we get going properly, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, for those of you that don't know the Institute, we're one of the UK's leading think tanks working to make government more effective. Uh, we are on the record for this event. The audio is being recorded uh, and will be available on the IFG website after the event. Uh, our recording of the conservative version of this from last week is also up there, should if you want to listen to that. Uh, some of the IFG team will be taking some photographs for our website and for social media through the event. Uh, we will be live tweeting from at IFG events, if any of you are still left on Twitter. Uh, and we're using hashtag IFGLab23. Uh, we're also at Institute for Gov, and you can find us on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. Uh, this is the first IFG event uh, at conference. We've got a packed uh, schedule today and tomorrow, uh, so please do take a look at our website for more information, and there might be some information uh, around at the back of the room as well. So artificial intelligence, uh, often uh, defined as the ability of machines and software to perform tasks normally performed by humans, it's been everywhere over the last few months. The government has published a white paper. We've got a frontier model task force. We've got the AI safety summit coming up. There are all sorts of parliamentary select committee inquiries. And I'm sure some of you might have seen the deep fake audio of Keir Starmer doing the rounds on social media yesterday. So it really is everywhere at the moment. Um, I think politics has really woken up uh, in recent months to the possibilities and potential pitfalls provided by AI. And that very human decisions can still shape uh, the future of machines. So how should government and how should a Labour government approach the development and regulation of artificial intelligence? How can we make the most of the opportunities while mitigating the risks now and in the future? And how can we discern the signal from the noise? Some very big questions, but I have a fantastic panel uh, to help answer those questions and more. First of all, we'll hear from Matt Rodder. <clears throat> Matt is the MP for Reading East and has been since 2017. Before entering politics, he was a civil servant and journalist specialising in education, uh, was then a councillor in Reading before becoming an MP and has been the Shadow Minister for Buses and Pensions before entering his new role as Shadow Minister for AI and Intellectual Property just a few weeks ago. After Matt, uh, we'll go to Heetan Shah. Heetan is the Chief Exec of the British Academy, which is the UK's National Academy for Humanities and Social Sciences. Uh, he's the former Chief Executive of the Royal Statistical Society, uh, the Chair of Our World in Data, an excellent data-based website. Uh, visiting professor at the King's College London Policy Institute, a fellow at uh, Birkbeck University, so um, somebody who's been around uh, data and AI discussions for a very long time. Uh, we'll then hear from Anna Thomas. Anna is the co-founder and founding director of the Institute for the Future of Work, which explores the impact of technology on work and on our working lives. She was previously a barrister specialising in equality and labour law. Uh, she's also established the Future of Work Commission, the all-party parliamentary group on the future of work, uh, the piece of Reedy's review on uh, work and well-being, and has previously advised the Labour Party on the future of work as well. Uh, and then we'll go to Andrew Rogoyski, who's the Director of Innovation and Partnerships at Surrey's Institute for People-Centred AI. <clears throat> The centre brings together Surrey's AI-related expertise um, in everything from vision and speech and signal processing to computer science and maths, with expertise across different domains ranging from health uh, to arts and the social sciences. Uh, Andrew's been in the industry, government and academia around AI for 30 years, um, previously a physicist, uh, then went into Logica through one of the early AI booms, ESIS, Kinetic, Cabinet Office, CGI, uh, and now at Surrey. And you should all have one of Surrey's reports uh, on your seat as well. Uh, I'm going to ask each of our panellists to speak for around five minutes. Uh, we'll then hopefully have some time for discussion between the panel, but I will very quickly come out to you, the audience, for questions as well, and we'll wrap up at 9.45. Uh, so that's more than enough intro from me. Uh, we'll hand over to Matt. Uh, well, thank you, Gavin, and uh, very nice of you to introduce me in that way, and it's a pleasure to be here today, and could I uh, thank everybody for getting here so early in the morning and managing to uh, get through the inevitable queue uh, to come into the hall. Um, so as you can imagine, I'm very interested in the potential of AI, both to support um, economic growth and also help improve delivery of key public services. And you may have heard my uh, colleagues, not least Keir Starmer, 
discussed this earlier, um, both at the conference and in the last few months. Um, I wanted to make three points this morning. Um, the first one really is just to spend a moment thinking about the incredible potential of AI. Um, and I wanted to draw on a couple of examples, both from uh, my own experience in my constituency and one or two things from Liverpool and indeed the sort of wider world. Um, so I'm sure you'll have seen some of the amazing um, opportunities that AI presents in terms of medicine, particularly around um, diagnostics and some other related fields. Um, and one of those examples actually is in my own constituency where we have a, a, a high level of expertise in treating strokes um, at the Royal Barks Hospital. And one of the consultants there um, working with um, an AI business has managed to um, come up with an app which he can use on his phone which helps him and other medics to make much swifter decisions about which type of treatment stroke patients may need. And this potentially is saving a significant number of lives. Um, so he can, through using AI technology, he can use um, relatively simple processes to understand the likelihood of blood clots, which is a huge risk after someone's had a stroke. Um, and that's a really simple example of the technology, obviously isn't simple, but it's, it's clear to understand the example and the benefits of AI, and there are many others from medicine. Um, many of them have been reported on the um, evening news, and there are a wide range of other benefits. And in Liverpool, it's interesting to see that in the city centre, there are already businesses um, offering AI-based services such as AI law, but there's also work at the university and um, a tie-up between DeepMind and Liverpool Football Club, where apparently they'll be looking at the pattern of passing and other activity on the pitch to try to understand tactics in a much deeper way than a human would be able to. And so that really demonstrates some of the potential. Um, my second point um, really is to think about the context of AI, given the um, times that we live in and the economic circumstances which uh, an incoming Labour government might face. So sadly, we've seen a long period of relatively low growth since 2010. So um, yet, at the same time, there's enormous potential in Britain. And what we want to do is untap that potential. And we're very optimistic about the future. And we do believe that AI has got an important role in that, in helping to generate economic growth. And we do also recognise that the UK has a competitive advantage in AI. Um, and that relative success of the AI, oh, sorry, of the UK, brings me to my third point, which is that under the current government, we're not um, doing enough to maintain that advantage. And there's a risk that other countries may um, start to... Um, catch up with us. And it's worth, in that vein, looking at the Conservatives' um, record on AI. And whilst um, AI has been moving at a blistering pace, the current government arguably being far too slow in some crucial areas of policy development. Um, so for example, it's taken them a very long time to um, produce a white paper on AI. In fact, ChatGPT, DALI, and a whole range of other AI technologies have developed during the time that the white paper is being written and rewritten, um, and only now are they consulting on it. So I do think there's questions to be asked there about the speed with which the government has um, addressed some of the technologies and the issues involved. There's also um, the point that, the that um, all AI models rely on high-quality data sets, and there's, there's an issue across government departments about whether government data is really suitable for um, work with AI because of the age of some of the data sets that government uses. And I think that's another point where they need to rethink and have a, a much more uh, fundamental look at what they're doing. Um, so we do need to get the basics of digital government right before we um, really consider the benefits of AI. And in contrast, we want to um, do far more and work in partnership with business in this fascinating and very exciting emerging sector. Um, and as you'll have heard from Kia, from Rachel Reeves and Peter Kyle, who's my boss, we do um, see AI as a key strategic priority for the country. And there is, therefore, a clear contrast between our approach and the government's approach. We are optimistic about the future of Britain. There is enormous untapped potential in the UK. And we do want to work with the AI industry and with academics and with others to develop the full potential of this amazing technology. So I look forward to hearing more from others today um, and to engaging with the audience and uh, responding to people's questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Max. Peter. Yeah, thanks. I, I might stand up just because I'm a bit short and people at the back probably can't see me. Um, do you want to raise the mic? Yeah, we'll do. Um, 
thanks Shadow Minister for a kind of optimistic uh, view on uh, AI and let's all hope that you know we can get those benefits to help with our shared prosperity uh, and uh, our health and our security. I think that the focus of today is how do we govern the ungovernable and I think that's a really good question with with AI. How do we get the value that you know Shadow Minister has been talking about but actually protect us all against the sort of possible risks? My first point is you've got to retain your brain. Sometimes the, the kind of concept of AI just is so magical that people stop using their kind of critical faculties, as it were, and swallow the stuff. There's a lot of stuff that is being press released without actual kind of high quality paperwork behind it. Uh, when you actually test it two years on, uh, the pilot has failed, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, let, let's just treat AI like we would any other policy area and actually ask good critical questions of it uh, and not, be, not, not, not lose our minds, as it were. I also think we're at the kind of phase where the hype cycle means that we uh, are overhyping all the benefits and the risks, as it were. Uh, there are going to be lots and lots of benefits, some of them quite boring, right? Automating really quite dull uh, bits of whatever your jobs are, whatever my job is, etc., in a really useful way. Uh, uh, currently, there's quite a strong focus within government and number 10 on existential risk. Uh, I'm one of the lucky 100 people going to the AI summit, uh, but the focus is extremely narrow. It's on you know security, uh, on frontier uh, AI, and what that might mean, as it were. Uh, my own view is that these kind of existential risk questions have a, I mean, they're important, and that the deep fake of Keir Starmer suggests, you know, we've got to think about big questions like democracy and so on, but it shouldn't distract us from the kind of bucket of more normal kind of day-to-day -day questions. What's this all going to mean for copyright? Uh, how are we going to safeguard the creative industries uh, and so on? What does this mean for bias? Uh, what does this mean for uh, hallucination and kind of in information and all those sorts of things? You know, issues which are on the plate right now, as it were, and affecting people's lives. And lots of, you know, businesses, civil society, academia are working on these things, but we mustn't get too distracted, I think, from, from that by thinking about just kind of existential AI is going to kill us all tomorrow. I think the UK white paper is actually quite good as a framework, and my suggestion would be that if there were an incoming Labour government, it retains it because it thinks about accountability, fairness, all the sorts of things that one would want from uh, consideration of how we deal with these technologies. Uh, and probably is more flexible than the EU approach, which has been focused a bit on kind of how risky are the technologies, whereas actually it's to do with the application of the technology rather than the risk underlying a, a particular technology. But I think the weakness at the moment is that there's not much planning around how you're going to operationalize the white paper. So, you know, I think it's the right approach to say each regulator needs to think, what does this mean in my sector? Because what it means in health is going to be quite different to what it means in transport. Are we seeing any new money for regulators to actually get to grips with any of this? Are, we going to, are they going to be able to hire in the skills that they need, the data scientists and others to actually understand any of this? I don't see it. So that feels to me, you know, the opportunity for a Labour government to really make this real. But over time, we're going to have to keep involving the public, keep involving researchers, because these, the technology keeps changing and we're going to have to keep adapting as it were. Um, I think this question of if we are worried about future risks, how do we create a resilient society? Because if you think about risk management, when you have unknown uh, kind of high black swan type risks, the, the approach that you're supposed to do at company level is make your organization resilient. And I think that's the same. We can't just think about the technology. We've got to think about society as well, I think. I'm really taken by Matt's point about data. Uh, I used to run the Royal Statistical Society, you're quite right, I think, that actually data is the fuel of AI and we could be doing much, much more there. You look at the court system, for example, at the moment we're digitizing the court system, there's not enough thinking going on as to how we're going to make that data usable so that we can ask good questions about what's happening in our justice system. And that's just to, to take one example. And similarly, a point about how do we retain talent in this UK or attract talent into the AI industries. R&D is really important. It's great that we've associated to Horizon Europe. That's going to help. But actually, visa costs in the UK are just terrible compared to lots of other countries. We've just bunged on a massive NHS surcharge to scientists and researchers coming to this country, uh, and that's going to be a deterrent effect. So thinking about this holistically, I think, will be really, really important. So finally, I suppose I would just say, you know, uh, the future is still to be shaped. Uh, there's a kind of dystopic future that we all kind of hear about in the press, you know, a surveillance society. Uh, prosperity not go, going into the hands of the many but just uh, in the hands of a few uh, tech companies and so on but there's an alternative future which is in a sense the opposite 
really supporting people to have better quality work uh, and to lead lives which are prosperous and AI can help us with that. I think it's in our hands collectively to be able to shape that and that future is still open. Thank you. Thank you, Ethan. And um, anyone interested in data about courts and the justice system, there's a fantastic IFG report uh, that was published just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Anna. Um, thank you, Gavin, and thank you very much, the Institute for Human Rights, for um, having me. Um, as um, Gavin has said, the Institute for the Future of Work is an independent research and development institute. Um, is that I'll use this one. Thank you. It's an independent research and development institute and charity researching the impacts of technology, including AI, on work um, and everyday lives and society too. Um, we are actually a spin-out from the Labour Party uh, Future of Work Commission, but we now we are a charity and operate cross-party um, uh, 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 at the moment. Um, so, um, as Hatton said. Um, uh, the policies that's based at the moment um, and Bletchley is characterised in particular by an emphasis on existentialist risk. Um, and uh, we do think that um, the uh, minister, the shadow minister, is right to focus in particular on opportunity and everyday impacts as well as risks. So um, it is at the moment the policy space which is crowded by what's happening about Bletchley um, and that's not unimportant and um, does not pay we think in sufficient attention to what we know now about risks impacts and opportunities um, or to everyday experiences of people including their values um, uh, 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 and uh, and the goals that we that we that we're aiming for and um, with the technology um, to particular insights and lessons that we can um, glean from uh, from certain areas such as work where work for most people um, is the is the source or a lot of people is the source of a lot of material and non-material benefits and it's the thread if you like that connects our everyday experience um, to our communities um, and to the society and the economy uh, as a whole so that's it's a special way uh, and lens to understand risks and opportunities and also to respond to them and regulate them um, we um so what we know, what we know about AI, focusing um, on our on our area of work and future of work and rated technology, um, is uh, that what's happening at the moment is not. Um, we didn't know. It, it, it's not. It, in many senses, it wasn't new. We we've known about large language models for a very long time. There has been a revolution recently in accessibility in the in the cap capacity to deploy um, uh, large led language models at, at sort of a huge scale and the speed of dissemination um, and, and the fusion as well between the different ways different types of technologies and the data sets um, that are available to it um, specifically on work we know it's not just about substitution it's not just about displacement that as well tends to crowd the policy space um, but it's also about a range of other impacts on the nature of work the terms of work the conditions and quality of work um, and also models for work it's sort of it's not it's not an area that can be self-contained in a way it's cross-cutting and will be cross-cutting against departments um, as I suspect the minister's role will become um, it's changing business models it's linked to an increase of uh, concentration of power and to monopolism to unfair competition so really um, in a sense the the, the um, Labour Party has a huge opportunity here to pull together and draw um, on a lot of uh, uh, policy areas that are being developed at the moment and align them and advance them um, with the support um, of, of AI properly, properly regulated. So um, in terms of work, we have uh, uh, intensification, we have telepresence and transference, we have job creation, we have matching, we have all these impacts on work which are a lot more than displacement and need to be taken into account. Um, we, there's a charter of good work which um, uh, which which also doubles up as an AI checklist of impacts, which is which which is useful and I and and, and want to name drop. Um, it also maps onto the ethical guidance that they have for AI. Um, a recent survey that we did that was published in the last month uh, with Warwick Business School as part of the Business Readers Review um, emphasizes a few things um, in this space and gives us a steer as to how we should and the speed at which we should re regulate. Um, it finds that 79% of firms across the UK um, are now adopting uh, AI and other automation technologies for both the cognitive and manual tasks. So cognitive has gone up as we probably guessed, but it's empirically demonstrating that. 
Importantly, SMEs are now using it um, to automate cognitive tasks as well as um, physical tasks, which again is really significant and significant for the Labour Party as well, um, where um, there is inadequate perhaps attention to the different types of company and tech company that we're that we're, uh, we're talking about. It, um, in, it, I will try and summarise it, um, but uh, recommend it to you. Um, the best outcomes, and this is a simplification, but not much, um, are linked to when innovation readiness um, is in place. So that that means that you get better outcomes when there is connectivity and when there's education. When, t- when time and attention is being paid, paid to people and the socio-technical you know, the socio-technical environment, as well as just the tech in an isolated way. Um, and also very significant, and perhaps significant to the Labour Party involved in the Labour missions as well, um, is that it shows um, through various mediators, including perception, that, y- that you get better outcomes on a range of measures if with high involvement practice. So if you involve um, uh, people um, in the... Oh dear, um, in the uh, in, in in the decisions to design, deploy, um, and develop the technology, your results are better. So um, why we should why we should, in our view, um, regulate and be be bolder now. Um, we're good, um, as the minister has said, at innovation in R&D and NAI in the UK, but we're also really good at regulation, in particular in tech, and we're good at civil society too in the UK. So it's a matter of bringing those strengths together now. Um, we can't let um, the tech uh, giants um, lead in this space. There's a very high risk, we think, of regulatory capture here. Um, the purpose of technology has never been to build technology, a product that uh, promotes human flourishing or well-being, that advances the labour missions. That's not how it is at all. So you don't, in an ideal world, allow, of course it must be done in very close consultation, but you don't allow that to lead the regulate, you know, the, to, to, uh, to, to lead in, in regulation. The principle, as Hotel said, is the right and better approach because it's future-oriented. So you set your goals um, and then you work up how you operationalise them in different domains and different sectors. Um, uh, I can't emphasise enough how it shows in the workplace how there's a huge need to operationalise and be specific about what that means in the context. It's, you can't wait for case law to go through and... Uh, and, uh, and um, and and um, and resolve uh, legal regimes that were set up a very long time ago. Um, and also, we know don't capture a lot of the impacts now. So we we know that they're not capturing relational impacts, group impacts. That it's basically impossible to for an individual person to prove something after it's gone wrong. It's not bold enough, and it's not optimistic enough um, in terms of really getting people to think about the right things um, and take advantage of the opportunities as well as the risks at the earliest point possible. Um, so, uh, yeah, we know that it's happening very fast, which is what the survey pulls out. Um, uh, we know that there's a plethora of guidance and regulation all over the world. In the US, I think that there are 17 states with doing different types of AI. So there's a huge opportunity to lead here and bring and bring it together um, and be bolder about the operation, 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 operation putting into practice the principle, the, the, the AI principle, the, the AI principle. So we do it, we've always done it in the UK, in my view, um, and we've always done really well. We set the goals, we set some red lines, you know, for example, that you identify, you know, in particular, that you identify those people affected. You, you, if you're involved in making a decision that will have significant impacts, you do what you can. You take reasonable steps to preemptively assess your impacts in advance. You take reasonable steps to respond to that in advance and you set up a sister of monitoring you can't know enough about the impacts to go there and to allow the regulators um, and sectors to work up our guidance um, as, uh, as as we go this is a fantastic space um, for labor to move into um, uh, with Bletchley coming up um, and a way in which the opportunities and the impacts uh, can be can be grasped um, uh, for the next phase of the AI strategy Thank you, Anna. <clears throat> and uh, now, Andrew. Thank you, Gavin. Um, thank you, Shadow Minister, and thank you, uh, fellow panellists. The trouble we're going last is that they've said uh, many of the things we've missed. <clears throat> it has been an extraordinary year for AI. Um, but for us at the university, AI is nothing new. We've been working in AI for the best part of 40 years. Um, we created the Science Institute for People Centered AI, which was taking 
forward our excellence in mass computer science and so on to really bring AI across the university. And with some prescience, we did this um, two years ago. Um, so we're now looking at the, the sort of the current hype um, with, with excitement, but also with some, um, some thoughts of how we want to steer the dialogue. And to those ends, you're probably sitting or fan, fanning yourself with um, uh, a, a paper that we've put together. Um, which captures some of the ideas that we think should be talked about and some of the recommendations that we think people should look at. So let me canter through those very quickly. Um, I think the first one which we put on is, is realising our place in the world of, of AI, the sovereign influence of a technology that is largely driven by the Silicon Valley hyperscalers. Um, the UK um, has a tremendous story in AI. Um, we're very good adopters, very good appliers. Uh, but let's be clear, this has been driven by the US and China, and that gives us all sorts of challenges in terms of technical development, in terms of regulatory uh, and legislative development, as we realise we have to operate on an international basis. Um, it gives us some interesting challenges for our population, for our businesses who are adopting a technology which is entirely under the control of the likes of OpenAI, Microsoft, Google, etc. And we need to think about what that means for us and how we uh, leverage that to best effect. Um, the second point is um, associated with that, and that's the pace and scale of um, AI at the moment is driven by the commercial sector. Um, uh, I saw a paper recently that uh, captured the percentage of academic big AI models 10 years ago, we accounted for about 75% of the work in, in the world. Uh, now academia globally accounts for about 4% of that. So the, the technology is being driven by the commercial world. Um, and we need to, again, think about what that means and, and make sure that we're supporting the, the, the non-corporate side of things to make sure that we're addressing some of the market failures, some of the social uh, impact of AI. Um, uh, and making sure that academic excellence is maintained in this, this area so that we build the skills, so that we address some of those hard problems that aren't necessarily first and foremost in the commercial uh, driver's minds. Uh, the third element, again associated with that, um, is educating our upscaling society. I think we all realise that, uh, you know, you walk into any meeting now in any organisation and people are talking about AI, they're often not clear about what AI actually is or what impact it will have on their organization. It doesn't matter whether I'm talking to people at school, whether I'm talking to people in businesses, where they're saying AI is, you know, we're worried about it, we don't quite know what to do about it. And I think there's, there's a real opportunity there to bring the level of awareness, recognize that using um, AI to best effect is becoming a life skill. You don't have to be coding up um, an AI model, but you do have to understand fundamentals like you know data bias, ethics, privacy, security, what can and can't be done with AI, what's different now. Remembering that AI is, you know, we've got AI on our phones, we've got AI solving problems of logistics, we, you know, we, we actually take a great deal of AI already for granted. So there's, there's a lot that we already depend on. So education and upskilling people um, at schools, getting AI into um, the school place at secondary level at, at uh, university and recognize that we need to support the educators in that because many educators don't necessarily have the background and skills in order to be able to pass that knowledge on and we've seen some of that in the teaching of computer science and maths and so on. Um, the fourth is actually recognizing that AI is going to have a huge impact on education itself. The idea of being able to personalize your education, um, having AI be able to generate the material that you can use uh, to be able to tune it for your particular learning style through life learning, you know, getting away from the idea that you go to school and go to, perhaps if you're lucky, you go to university, that's your not, that's that's your education done. That's going to change because careers are changing, the future's changing. You're going to be upskilling, reskilling, um, changing what you do over your lifetime. And, and the opportunity for AI to support that process is very high. And I think that's something that we need to look at very carefully. Then there's the future work, and I hesitate to add it to anything that Anna and Lewis uh, has already said. Um, but to recognize that AI does need to be um, sensitively adopted by businesses, and uh, shocks need to be evolved, uh, need to be avoided. Uh, one of my greatest concerns is, uh, is uh, the 
the speed at which some AI is being adopted in certain industry sectors is beyond disruptive. It's actually wrecking some sectors of the economy. We're looking at some of the creative industries as an example of that. Um, sixth, development of a positive narrative around AI. Um, when you talk about AI, most people are thinking about killer robots and putting you out of a job. We really need to get past that to actually look at the opportunities, which I think as uh, the Shire Minister has, has alluded to and uh, as had my friend Pamela's. Um, and then the final point where I really wanted to do in terms of challenge is actually looking at accountability and responsibility. Uh, making companies and uh, organizations who deploy products in this area truly accountable for um, what they are putting out into the marketplace in a way that we failed to do in social media and, and we live with the consequences of that. So our recommendations fall into three buckets. First is um, really around creating governmental leadership. Um, so creating a strong focus within government and um, not necessarily relying on individual regulators to take care of this all and actually taking a more overarching view. And there's nothing wrong with regulators doing any regulation within their own sector, but joining that up, having consistency amongst them at more than the principles level. You know, there's probably over 100 different organizations that have published AI principles from Department of Defense to the Vatican. Um, you know, we're great on principles, but actually the point that uh, Anna made about operationalizing those um, is really important and people are failing to do that at the moment. The second block is around education in AI, um, realizing that we need to get everyone up to up to speed on AI, making sure that we really prepare an AI-ready workforce uh, as a nation. And the third one is actually getting down to some nitty-gritty of the uh, the accountability of the legal regulatory environments, when we actually make sure that companies are doing the right thing for the right reasons and can be held to account. Um, and whatever we do in this area, we have to realize we have to do it at pace because the world in AI is changing on a weekly basis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, I think when Harold Wilson talked about the white heat of the technological revolution, he wasn't thinking about this room specifically, but he may have been. Um, before I come to the audience for questions, a very quick one from me to the panel. Um, you've all been very grounded. Um, and practical in the way that you've been talking and thinking about this, again, far from the sort of sci-fi killer robots idea. What do you think we actually need to do practically to enable and prepare politicians and policymakers, regulators and the public for what might come next? How do we, how do we get ready to make the most while mitigating all of the risks? I don't know who wants to go first. Well, I think I was talking about how do you actually put more money into regulators? Uh, so at the moment, most regulators don't have a background in AI. Uh, it's quite hard to recruit data scientists. Anyone trying to hire in that marketplace at the moment will find the private sector is absolutely, you know, and quite rightly so paying top dollar for that. So how do you get the skill sets into government? So do we need some practical things of kind of, if you look at things like the health and safety executive, they've seen their budget cut over the last decade, and that's probably true across many regulators who are now having to cope with sort of more difficult, complex areas. So how do we empower regulators, including with funding? Uh, do we need to change some of the rules in government? I know there's already a bit of work going on around that. Can we do more secondments in from the private sector, et cetera, et cetera, so that we've actually got the skill base? Just adding, adding a couple um, of points. If we think about how difficult it is for the regulators to build their capacity um, and to enforce it and to have this joined up approach, which we all agree is so important. Um, and th think about that applied to sort of uh, the, pu the public and bodies as well and institutions um, that also that, that um, uh, offer a mediating role, um, including um, industry bodies and, and, and unions. Um, we need a sort of step change in thinking about skills and capacity building, thinking of skills more widely in terms of uh, how we can augment human capabilities um, and building in as basic AI skills um, certain levels of knowledge and understanding about AI, about its huge opportunities as well as risks, and having the language to, to do that. Also on sandboxes, we need a sort of bigger and more innovative approach to practicing things as we regulate and thinking cleverly about how that can feed into regulation as it as it emerges and using it for things like promoting equality as well as, you know, uh, as, well, as, well as other things. Um, and thank you very much. I better stop. But I do. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, so um, once again, I think some very interesting points made um, by other colleagues on the panel. Um, 
so first of all, I think we do, these are broad themes that I think we need to be thinking about at the moment across the piece. So the first one is to obviously recognise the opportunities, which I mentioned earlier and other panellists have also referred to. And at the same time, um, start to work towards sensible regulation. And the white paper obviously was a start on that, but this, as others have mentioned, some real gaps. Um, we also need to understand the cross-cutting nature of AI. So one of the points for me as well, and for other um, panellists, other people in, in the room today, is to just think about how this spreads across the whole of society and different parts of the economy. And then we also need to have a focus on education. And one of the things that I would put a little plug in for there is the way that we're planning to, my colleagues in the education have announced plans to reform the apprenticeship levy, for example, um, and others, other forms of change to our education system, further um, modernisation of the system. And on the apprenticeship levy in particular, moving away from a very rigid approach and allowing firms more flexibility, I think will really help in work training and development and help us all to... Uh, take on board some of the learning that's so clearly out there. Um, I, I think there is actually a, a good precedent here, and that was the National Cybersecurity Programme, which was about 10 years ago. Um, and that was a concerted effort by government to recognise that we were living digital lives and that security was a big issue. And that covered, uh, it, it was a big chunk of money that went across the various government departments and each it was governed from the cabinet office and each department was held accountable for we're giving you this money in return we want to see some outcomes and in that they achieved significant changes in policy regulation and they addressed skills they addressed um, individual um, regulatory problems including the, the fact that they couldn't recruit people in uh, that had the necessary expertise with those uh, regulators so it included a national international conference. Um, you know, there, there are lots of um, patterns here that I think could be, um, lessons could be learned uh, and, and repeated. And I think what it really did was it gave a sort of, you know, proper focus at governmental level about what the whole of government should be doing, because government is a, is a big driver in this within the UK, both as a, as a procurement uh, side of things, you know, whatever double-digit percentage of the economy is driven by government spending. Um, but also in, in terms of policy and so on, uh, it influenced uh, education. It gave rise eventually to the National Science Security Centre, which remains a body as a sort of UK cert and authority of what we should be doing in science security. So I think there are some parallels there, um, and you know there's, there are some good lessons for for what happened, and there are also some some lessons to be avoided. Brilliant, thank you. Um, we'll come to the audience for questions. I'll try to take two or three at a time. Please do wait for the microphone to come to you. Do tell us who you are. Um, remember, we are on the record. Uh, and please do try to keep things short so we can get through as many as possible. Um, this is my best question time impression. We'll take the lady in pink there. Uh, there's a hand just behind her. And I will take um, the gentleman down here in the front. So I'll come to um, the rest of you next time. I'm Evelyn Welsh. Um, I'm the Vice Chancellor of the University of Bristol. As you know, we've been selected as the site for the super, National Supercomputer for AI. My question to the panel is, what level of depth do you think that citizens need to have in terms of skill and understanding of AI in order to actually be able to make decisions around it? Brilliant. Thank you. Hi, my name is Lizzie Collins. I'm parliamentary candidate for Morecambe and Leansdale. I think my question follows on is how do we ensure that parliamentarians have the levels of knowledge and skill to not only regulate well, but to communicate with our constituents and to advocate for our constituents? Thank you. Great, thank you. And we've got a question down here as well. Thanks. Uh, Robin Bisson from Research Professional News. Um, just picking up on what was said about AI being driven largely by uh, companies in, in the US and, and China to some extent as well. Um, it'd be good to hear more about uh, what the Shadow Minister was saying about the UK's relative advantages and, and what those actually are. Brilliant, thank you. Three great questions. So we've got depth and citizens need to know things about uh, ditto parliamentarians and I suppose the UK's relative advantages and its place in the world. Who would like to kick us off? Happy to go first. If I, um, <clears throat> so on the, um, what we all need to understand about AI, I think, and you probably won't accept, expect me to say anything other than this, it obviously depends on your, your role, your work. Um, if I can give an example of uh, one of my uh, local residents, who's well, in fact, is a councillor in Reading, who works as a software engineer already, um, a lot of people in that 
this, that industry are using AI as a co-pilot to help them diagnose problems in computer systems or telecom systems. And that's maybe an example of how some people would interact with AI. And I think that's probably, in, if you're looking at the kind of general population and at work generally, there will be a, there will be roles where people will work quite closely with AI. But then at the other end of the spectrum, and, and Lizzie sort of hinted at this as well, there'll be other um, people who will be coming at it afresh. And I think there's a question for all of us just to familiarise ourselves with, as one of the panellists said earlier, the, the sort of broad um, issues involved in AI. But it is a, a fantastic opportunity. This is a transformational technology, and we um, need to be able to see the huge benefits in it and then obviously have sensible regulation. Um, and in terms of... Um, if I may um, sort of quickly segue into Robin's uh, question about the UK's comparative advantages. Well, I think we, we have a number of comparative advantages in AI, but also in terms of the UK economy and our science base in general. And it's worth remembering that we, we do have those strengths. So in terms of our um, economy as a whole, um, we've got a very strong science and technology sector. We have world-leading universities. Um, we've got um, a lot of uh, tech companies headquartered, sorry, uh, active in the UK um, with significant presence. Um, certainly in my um, constituency in Reading East, we've got the second largest Microsoft um, facility in Europe. Um, we have a number of other large um, tech companies and a thriving, smaller um, and very entrepreneurial, um, innovative startup community as well. Um, so I think we, we have a lot of strengths in terms of... Um, other aspects of AI and the wider British economy. Obviously, DeepMind is uh, based in the UK. There's, we're going to have this new uh, facility in Bristol. Um, we have, it depends how you measure it, obviously, but we're arguably in a position where we're um, after the US and China. Um, we have a, the third um, largest um, AI sector, depending on how you measure it. Um, but the, the measurements generally indicate it's the third largest. Um, and then we are somewhere ahead of our um, fellow European countries um, in terms of the size of the UK AI industry. So all of that's important, and I think we, we need to bear that in mind. Um, and it's interesting to see how already AI is being adopted. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, there's some amazing opportunities with it. Um, those are, um, those are, those are, those are brilliant questions. Um, it will, of course, the knowledge um, that's needed will, of course, depend on who it is, what their interest is, and what they're doing with it. And it will be, of course, and it will have to be tiered. So there will be some things that really the only the regulators will be able to have, and other things that we should start teaching children um, as early as as early as possible. Um, but I think perhaps a way of looking at it, a principle, is it's enough in order to have meaningful involvement um, in the pro in in what's happening in the tra in the in the in the deployment and in the and in the, and in the process. And in the monitoring of it too, and, re and reviewing it, it has to be, it, ha it has to be meaningful, um, and that does require um, some things that aren't currently covered by legislation. Although there are nudges in that direction, um, not just about the remit and purpose of the AI, which may include some information about um, uh, variables and weighting and that kind of thing, um, but also the key: how they're being built, how they're being built, what who the who the key humans are involved, what the design choices are, um, and how they are being integrated, what the, what the purpose is um, in the integration and use of that technology in order that you can um, uh, ascertain um, uh, risks and impacts as best as, as, best, as, uh, as, be as best you can, um, in order that you can um, uh, maximise the opportunities and minimise the risks. Thank you. Um, yeah, just, to, just to add to some points made, I think to Evelyn's question, um, one of the things that I would recommend, I'm very jealous of your computer facility and we're here we're going to be able to use it. Um, it is, yeah. Um, is, is to deal with the consequences of AI. So not just AI per se, you know, we, there's, there's a whole range of digital technologies that become more and more influential in our, in our lives and AI is, you know, the latest one that's got everyone excited. And I think teaching people, um, educating people, the consequences of that. So what will it mean for future careers? What will it mean for uh, impact on society? Our communications are, you know, in the education sector, it's going to be very, very influential. Um, it's already impacting education. Our students are using large language models to write their essays and their dissertations to improve their written English and so on. And in some cases, absolutely why not? Because what it's doing for us as educators is changing 
what we teach and how we teach and how we assess and so on. So dealing with those consequences is one of the things that we need to get ahead of, recognising that there's this steamroll of technology coming down the horizon. Uh, we need to think about, okay, what does that mean for my business sector? You know, I was talking to a creative uh, company the other day that said, you know, their competitors are now doing in two days what it took them six months ago to do in two weeks. And so it's completely changed, transformed their video um, production company as it was. Um, I talked to a student the other day, not in my university, who's doing a photography degree, who's just finished his second year, and who just said, is it worth me finishing my degree? Um, absolutely, yes, it is. You're a creative human being, but you've got to get ahead of the, the use of these tools and skills. And it's, it's adapting, adopting uh, that we need to teach that. Um, to Lizzie's questions on parliamentarians, I mean, the more parliamentarians we see that perhaps have STEM backgrounds, that, that's been a cry for a long time. Um, but, but actually recognising that we do need to provide support for parliamentarians um, in this digital world to make sure that we're providing, answering some of the questions that actually don't get answered by the commercial world. <laughs> Hence the importance of supporting academic institutions in this. Um, academic institutions will be really important for holding some of those companies to account if we do come up with sort of things like licensing regimes, which the US is tinkering with at the moment. And then I think um, Deshaun was going to answer the problem's question about US and China. Um, I think the UK is a player in this. Uh, we have all sorts of strengths, but not necessarily at sort of the scale. It's actually the thought that goes behind it. Yeah, just <clears throat> on, on Robin's question, uh, and good to meet you, fan of your work, etc. Um, obviously, I would say this, but a UK kind of competitive advantage is not just the strength in science, but the strength in shape disciplines, social science, humanities and arts, because to get this right, you actually need you need philosophers, you need historians of science, you need economists, you need geographers, you know, to understand uh, what all of this means for us. So, uh, you know, the British Academy would say that, but it is genuinely true when you compare us to other countries which have got particular strengths in one discipline, but not necessarily in others. And I think also uh, one of the things the UK is trying to do, and we'll see if we pull it off, is position us as the kind of regulator of choice. So, you know, US is a bit of free-for-all, Europe is a bit heavy-handed. Can we be the sort of place that does the sensible regulation that has ethics but is flexible? That that's the game we're trying to play. There is a scale question of whether we're going to be able to pull it off or whether, like with GDPR, actually the EU will kind of ultimately rule. My own view is that the EU will move a bit closer to kind of how we are doing things and we'll move a bit closer to the EU. And you know, but that, that, that's just a kind of personal guess. Uh, on parliamentarians, I, I think one thing to say on parliamentarians is that. The UK has actually had quite a lot uh, coming from Parliament on this agenda, going back quite a long way now. So um, if you think back to the Science and Technology Select Committee, uh, about six years ago did one on big data, uh, and then there's been one on algorithms, and so there have been several in the Lords as well. So I kind of feel like our parliamentarians, not necessarily all of them, but certain groups have been kind of on the front foot on some of this. Um, we at the British Academy run regular Ask the Expert things. We did one on Ukraine, for example. Very happy to do one on AI, if, if that's helpful to you. Uh, and then on what do people need to know? I suppose this is where, if you look back at the kind of the coding uh, fashion uh, a few years ago, where everyone must learn to code. Uh, and actually, you know, it's not that helpful because these tools go very quickly in and out. So I agree with my fellow panelists. This is more about critical thinking. It's about actually understanding what these technologies mean. So getting rid of some of the panic and all the kind of Terminator photos in the papers. Uh, not all jobs are going to be destroyed. The history shows actually technology comes and jobs come and go, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, also, I think, how do we use citizens and the public to deliberate much more on this technology? So I helped found the Ada Lovelace Institute. We created a citizen's jury uh, looking at biometric technology uh, and, you know, really getting people to up, up to speed on this stuff, which none of us really understand. What will it mean to have facial recognition being used very widely? And where does the public want those lines drawn? Thanks. Let's go for another round of audience questions. Uh, I've got the lady down at the front. Um, we'll take the lady at the back and the gentleman in the white shirt as well. Sorry. <laughs> 
Thank you. I'm Fiona Rutherford from Justice, which is a law reform and human rights uh, charity. Uh, my question, I suppose, is probably more for Hitam, based on the fact that you made the comment around data sets. Um, and you talked about the age of, of data sets, and you specifically referenced an area that um, certainly we focus on in the in the courts and the justice sector. It's not just age, though, is it? It's, it's quality. Um, and I, I wonder what can be done at pace, uh, using a phrase that uh, another panel member used, to ensure that we have the right data so that we're not faced with a rubbish in, rubbish out uh, prospect. Thanks. Uh, gentleman just there. Hello, um, my name's James Davis. I'm an employment lawyer. Um, looking at the regulation of AI as far as it relates to decision-making, particularly in, in employment, um, it's already very heavily regulated by UK GDPR impact assessments, human oversight, fair and lawful processing, ability to effectively challenge decisions. It seems to me that we can go in three directions. We can do what I think the Tories are proposing, which is to reduce the protections under the data, data protection legislation. We can recognise that that's a pretty effective regime for protecting individuals and seek to um, uh, provide further guidance on what it actually means. Or we can introduce a set of further restrictions on the use of AI beyond, above and beyond what already exists. And I think we just need to be clear in which direction we think we should be going. I wonder what the panel would think about that. Thank you. And we've got a lady at the back uh, standing up. Thank you. Uh, my name's Monique Hawkins. I'm from the Three Million. We represent EU citizens who are here in the UK. And um, I just wondered what safeguards should be put in place in terms of where the state makes decisions for citizens. I'm thinking particularly sort of immigration decisions, but also right to work decisions. And should there be some kind of transparency register? What are the ways of challenging decisions that have been made to the detriment of individuals? Brilliant. Thank you. Three great questions. It's probably the last set we're going to get through. So uh, as well as addressing data quality improvements, uh, the direction of regulation and safeguards on state use of all of this, uh, any final thoughts from the panel as well? Who'd like to go first? I'm happy to kick off if you like. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Fiona, on data, I mean, I didn't make the ageing point. I think that was the shadow minister. But I think the point is that... Uh, at the moment, certainly in the justice system, if you look back, we can't say during the pandemic how, how many courts met virtually. Uh, it's very hard to kind of track the case uh, backlog, etc. What are the outcomes? Uh, you know, all these sorts of, you know very well, but I'm just sort of saying for the wider audience, give, given the digitization of the court system is happening right now, if we can be much clearer that this isn't just a technological change, but an opportunity to get the data that we want. The other thing I think is the governance. So who decides what happens to that data? And at the moment, there's quite a strong private sector oversight, but actually not enough civil society. So, and I think that that kind of then runs through all of the public sector and how we improve data sharing for better public, you know, uh, delivery as well. I think is a really important question. Uh, on James's question, I think actually the choices you lay out are probably roughly the choices across every area. So you're obviously talking from your area of employment and I think it's exactly right so my own view is in general let's see if we can get current regulation to work because for the most part it's been carefully crafted and for the most part it probably will might require a bit of case law to reinterpret etc etc but you know so I would say let's try and build on the systems that we've got which have kind of developed over time and then fill where there are radical gaps uh, you know deep fakes might be one of them I don't know uh, one of the things which is just literally quite new uh, but for, for the most part I think actually we can build upon what we've got and then uh, on Monique's question which I think is a really good one um, so my own view is that we've got to be quite careful about introducing AI and algorithms into very high stakes decision making. And that's not the place to start. That's the problem that if you start there, and I suppose, you know, I have two words on all of this, which is post office. Uh, you just look at, and that, that, that was pre-AI, right? I mean, that's not an AI issue, but there was no accountability to the way that the computer systems were failing and there was no mechanisms to, to, to hold, uh, to appeal and to hold that to account, just as you're sort of saying. So, uh, and my slight worry is that we are seeing, for example, AI being rolled out around universal credit. Uh, it, it's often where people are the most marginalized or most vulnerable that we're seeing this. I would rather us use, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying don't, never use AI, I'm saying use AI, but to do, 
actually, how do we use it to improve equity? How do we use it to give citizens voice? And actually, if you start with a different question, you can use these powerful technologies to actually change the, change the balance. Um, those, are, those are very good questions. But um, homing in on the one specifically about law, it's right that at the moment there's a really messy patchwork of law. So we've got equality law and labour law, um, uh, you know, equal equal opportunities and equality. Out. We've got IP and competition, and it's all and information and consultation regs, um, and it's all over the place. Now, the advantage of having an overarching framework is that you clearly establish your purpose and your direction of travel. What you're trying to do is what I couldn't pronounce earlier. You're trying to operationalize principles, and you're trying to direct it as best you can, reasonable in a reasonable and proportionate way towards the best outcomes, which are good for people, firms, um, and, and, and society. Um, it doesn't mean that you ignore um, the existing laws. To the contrary, it should never undercut those. It should it should have a process of identifying gaps as we've begun to do um, and begin to fill and begin to fill those. Um, so we need to see it as part of a as a bolder, joined up approach in which um, impacts on uh, work and working lives are not sort of marginalised or considered after the event, but forefronted and embedded in that system. And our aim is basically good AI and good uh, good automation um, and a short circuit a short circuit to getting there is to think about good work impacts as early as you possibly can. Thanks, Anna. I'll go to Andrew and then leave the final word to Matt. All right, very, very quick uh, input on those three questions. Excellent questions. <clears throat> Just a quick um, observation on Fiona's question about uh, data. I think there's an interesting development technically around the use of synthetic data, um, and that's gaining traction in the, the world of AI. Um, and that opens up a whole another can of worms that, uh, uh, and some potential benefits. So just just flag that. We won't explore that too much now. I think on James's question about um, law and so on, I think there's, I, th I think businesses uh, in the US, China, uh, everywhere around the world want clarity of what the rules are, so that they know where to invest and they know where to put their their their, their efforts. Um, and I think that that sort of innovation-friendly approach is a bit too loose, and I think we, we need to be clear about, you know, where businesses uh, need, to, need to worry about um, or, or need to think about what rules. I don't think there's a dividend in being permissive in AI, um, and I think that's important for us to realise. And then for Monique's question, I, I, I think the human-in-the-loop argument, transparency and so on, is really important, um, and I think it extends beyond those systems that make decisions about your lives. I mean, the EUA Act is, is very clear about categorizing those as, as high risk. I think it then extends into actually decision-making that we all make as individuals on a daily basis and the whole argument about truth and so on. But we could have a much longer discussion about the impact of um, AI in the digital world on, on the meaning of truth. Um, but that's for another day. Thank you, Andrew. Um, and Rosa, thank you very much for raising the points about the um, justice system, because I wasn't quite as aware of that as you are. Um, and when I was talking about the um, age of some government systems, I was thinking about legacy systems in large government departments, and particularly because I was the shadow pensions minister for two and a half years, very aware of some of the problems with some legacy systems in DWP, um, but it may apply to other government departments as well. So it's, it's interesting to remember this and the need to to improve the quality of data. And as other colleagues said earlier, obviously we want to have high quality data to allow um, AI to operate properly. Um, in terms of, um, the, um, on some of these legal points, and I don't want to stray too far into this area, but certainly we, we think it's important to recognize um, existing legal rights. Um, and, and there've been a number of points made about this. Um, and that links to the need for wider a wider need for sensible regulation and in fact as Andrew was just saying quite rightly that actually helps and encourages businesses to make business decisions because they know what they're dealing with and they want security and certainty at, at this time um, and indeed generally um, in running their businesses effectively and I think what, what is needed at the moment is a wider discussion on some of these issues but also for the government to speed up the process of the white paper um, and it has been quite disappointing that they've taken such a long time to come to bring this forward and, and the consultation that follows it seems to be really quite slow. So the white paper was published in the spring, but they're only still continuing consultation now. Um, and just to, I suppose, to finish up really and to sum up 
where I feel we are at the moment. It's been a fascinating discussion. Great to, to meet everybody on the panel. I, I would say that we do all need to keep focused on the transformational opportunities of AI, particularly in science and medicine, in a whole range of other fields, and indeed improving productivity and generating more economic growth, which is so important at the current time. So um, whilst obviously acknowledging the need for sensible regulation, as we've, we've all discussed um, in our own contributions, and if I may, I'd like to thank everybody once again for coming this morning. It's a relatively early start um, in what could best be described as a kind of plastic goldfish bowl um, in the basement of a huge conference centre. But I think it shows the level of interest in this really important and exciting area. So thank you very much. Thank you, Matt. And as, as you say, I think it's been a terrific discussion. Uh, there's been plenty of light, um, but also a lot of heat. Um, we um, we could carry on uh, discussing this all morning. I hope this is the start of a discussion rather than the end. Uh, but as I mentioned, the IFG has got lots of events uh, coming up through today and tomorrow. In fact, the next one is in here at 10.30, all about devolution across England uh, with Paula Barker and others. All that remains for me to say are three very big thank yous uh, to you, the audience, for some excellent questions and coming along today to the University of Surrey's Institute for People-Centred AI for supporting the event. And please join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic panelists. Thank you very much. Thank you.